Good morning and welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference where we help you live your discipleship in the public arena. I'm Jason Atkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me today in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Good morning, Kit. Hey, good morning, everyone. I hope that you're having a really blessed weekend. You can catch us each Saturday here on Relevant Radio AM 1330 at 11 a.m., but you can also catch up on past episodes online. Just visit mncatholic.org podcast. Again, that's mncatholic.org podcast for our full show library. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Each week, we bring you great interviews on some of the major issues impacting how we live our faith in the public arena. We answer your questions through our mailbag segment. You can email those questions to show at mncatholic.org. Again, that's show at mncatholic.org. Or contact us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And it wouldn't be an episode of The Bridge Builder if we didn't provide you with practical ways that you can build bridges to bring the faith into public life each week. Today, we're joined on the line by Dr. Charlie Camosi, an associate professor of theology at Fordham University in the Bronx. A theme running through his work is that the fostering of intellectual solidarity between political and ethical approaches which find conversation difficult is very important for our public discourse today. He has put this intellectual solidarity into practice as a founding member of the Organizing Committee for an International Conference designed to think and speak differently about abortion. He's also the founder and co-director of the Catholic Conversation Project, a contributor to Crux Online uh, Catholic Journal, and editor and contributor to CatholicMoralTheology.com. And he is now the author of Resisting the Throwaway Culture, How a Consistent Ethic of Life Can Unite a Fractured People. Thank you for joining us this morning, Dr. Kamosi. Welcome. Glad to be with you, Jason. So people may have heard of the throwaway culture, but what does that term mean exactly, and what are its defining features? Well, that's what I start out in my book trying to define, and I really take my lead from Pope Francis, where he says the throwaway culture is a culture in which everything has a price. Everything becomes expendable. Uh, especially in our consumer culture, where we think of it as everything is almost a consumer good, even people sometimes as consumer goods, not as ends in themselves. And then once we consider uh, people to be things, uh, products, uh, then they can be discarded more easily. And those who are discarded are usually those who are most vulnerable. So human embryos and prenatal children, obviously, the old and the sick and the disabled, I even argue that non-human animals, simply because they taste good, are in this category. Migrants, uh, people who have committed capital crimes and others are into this category. But finally, one important part, of, essential part of throwaway culture is we, um, we take their dignity away by often misnaming them. So one classic example, I'll finish with this, is instead of saying child when it comes to abortion, we use the term fetus. Have you ever noticed this? Nobody ever heard of a fetus bump, of course. It's a baby bump. Uh, but we, you, with the throwaway culture, in order to make people more easy to throw away, will will lower their dignity, even erase their dignity by misnaming them. So the commodification of human persons is aided and abetted by what Orwell called the misuse and abuse of the English language. Oh, that's a good way of saying it. <laughs> So you argue that what uh, we talk about in the church is a consistent ethic of life is an antidote to this throwaway culture and this commodification of human persons. Share a little bit about uh, your argument and why you think that's the case. 
Well, first of all, a consistent life ethic is just the teaching of the Catholic Church. If you read Pope St. John Paul II's Evangelium Vitae, it is a, the gospel of life. It's a consistent life ethic um, argument and a consistent life ethic document. Now, a consistent life ethic is not saying that everything is the same as abortion, euthanasia, or something like that. It merely says if you have this principle, if you have this value, you have to follow the principle. You have to honor that value in every circumstance. It's, it, the throwaway culture says, well, if it's inconvenient for you to consider fetuses to be people, or if it's inconvenient for you to uh, consider people um, at the end of their lives the same as people in the middle of their lives, then you can just throw them away. A consistent life ethic says no. <laughs> um, one of my old uh, professors used to say, Charlie, arguments are like um, arguments are like buses. They're not like taxis. You have to follow the bus wherever it goes. You can't get in a bus and, and tell the bus driver like a taxi driver where it goes. Well, arguments and principles are the same way. And a consistent life ethic says, if we're going to be rational, if we're going to be honest, if we're going to be authentic, we have to follow our principles and um, end up, if we don't like where we end up, we better get on a different bus or find a different principle, find a different argument. Oftentimes it seems that uh, selling even Catholics on a consistent ethic of life has been difficult because, you know, people have passionate feelings about one issue or another, whether it's worker justice and immigration on one side of the aisle or abortion and sanctity of life issues on another. How have you, uh, what ways have you found it to be effective to help people see the, the logic of the arguments and recognize that the commodification of the, the worker, for example, in our new gig economy or at uh, uh, the, the new sweatshops at Amazon uh, is just as important in, in, in terms of how we think about these things and looking at the commodification of persons as an issue like commercial surrogacy and, and the throwaway culture with regard to abortion, things like that. How do you draw connections for people to get them out of the, uh, the issue silos or the intellectual silos that we seem to be living in? Well, in the beginning of the book, Resisting Throwaway Culture, I, I lay out seven principles that I think almost everyone or I don't know, a clear majority of people can agree with. And uh, and then I say, well, if you can agree with these principles, then again, if we're committed to rationality, if we're co committed to authenticity, if we're committed in not just changing our arguments midstream or not consistently following our arguments because they're inconvenient, then we're going to end up uh, following the arguments when, when it comes to worker justice, when it comes to migrant justice, when it comes to ecological justice, when it comes to prenatal justice, when it comes to justice at the end of life. These are these are just the requirements of what it means to have a principle, to say, if, if I have um, a, a concern for the most vulnerable, if I have a uh, aversion to violence, if I have um, a voice to speak up for the voiceless, if I refuse to allow consumer culture to turn people into things just to be used as mere means to an end, then I have to do that in every circumstance. And, and my, in my experience, when people are focused on the principles, what they hold most dear, the things they hold deepest in their hearts, as opposed to their kind of surface level political commitments, you know, right, left, conservative, Republican, red, blue, um, it's much easier to have those kinds of conversations. In my book, it is, a, is an attempt to say, let's hit the pause button on our obsession with national politics and focus more on those first principles and I think we'll end up in a better place. Say a little bit about your view of uh, the new rhetoric or new vocabulary of integral ecology that um, Pope Francis has used and built on his predecessors and the way in which that uh, relates to a consistent ethic of life. Do you think that's a useful terminology or framework for thinking about what you're proposing? 
Yeah, in fact, I mentioned it in the book several times. It's it's very important, especially as we think about the ecology of the human body. Another phrase that's gaining traction is human ecology. So even the ecology of the human body and how, say, contraception affects it or how abortion affects it or how um, just even our the food we eat affects it. How our how our um, you know how our uh, environment affects it is super important for how we think about um, the broader ecological world more broadly and the interconnections there are really important not only um, in a consistent life perspective but in a, just a broader perspective of what Catholic Church demands of us it's all connected as Pope Francis would say you touched on this a little bit but say. Uh, how you would distinguish a consistent ethic of life from just merely a grab bag of political positions. And I think oftentimes, as you said, the, the church's perspective gets pigeonholed as merely a kind of a grab bag of a bunch of political perspectives. It's more than that, though. It's a set of principles. Can it can it be integrated into daily life as well? Yeah. In fact, in the book, I'm really at pains to say, let's let's not <laughs> let's not focus on politics especially national politics i think we make an idol in fact and i'm i'm at risk of this too you know obsessing over like what's coming in the next election cycle or what uh you know how long does so and so have on the supreme court before there's a new pick or something like that those those kinds of concerns keep us anxious and frothy and not really grounded in what matters most the gospel of jesus christ and of his church and um, so my book is really an attempt to say, hey, hey, again, let's let's look at the principles of the consistent ethic of life and then actually apply them to our lives, to how we live. Get up off the couch and lead a, what I call a counterculture of uh, encounter and hospitality. And that counterculture of, of encounter and hospitality is the counterculture to the throw. It's the antidote to the throwaway culture. When we encounter others, when we show hospitality to others, we do the opposite of throwing them away, of course, right? We don't throw them away. We include them in our lives. Everything from welcoming a child into a mother's body to welcoming the stranger to uh, even visiting those in prison, I think, is, a, is cl- are classic examples of precisely this. People are looking for models. Uh, Pope Paul VI said, uh, you know, people follow witnesses more than they do teachers. And to the extent they follow teachers, it's because they're first witnesses. Where where are some models of a consistent ethic of life uh, beyond simply the the, the theological uh, superstructure of the Catholic Church today? Yeah, well, I would first start with the Church. <laughs> but uh, And Pope Francis and Pope uh, Benedict XVI and Pope John Paul II. But uh, beyond that, it's hard, especially in the U.S. culture, because we make, in my view, such an idol out of the left-right political binary and of trying to be effective in secular politics within the context of that left-right political binary. But I guess maybe a person, I've, I always try to uh, lift up people as examples, and uh, I love Abby Johnson. She's one of my, probably my favorite pro-life activists. I have a lot of favorites, but She's definitely in the top tier, and she, as you may know, is behind this recent movie Unplanned, which told her story of being a um, former uh, clinic director of an abortion clinic run by Planned Parenthood, and she uh, left all that, and, and the movie tells an amazing story about her conversion, and she now runs this uh, this great program um, uh, called And Then There Were None, which attempt to help love um, abortion workers out of the abortion industry. It's just an amazing, amazing program. She recently helped lead a group of uh, pro-life women to bring what they called, quote, bottles to the border, where they brought a literal semi-truck load full of um, 
uh, baby and toddler um, materials uh, and and uh, and diapers and you know bottles and other things to the border for uh, children who are obviously there through no fault of their own. And uh, it was just a, an amazing pro-life witness, you know, a very consistent pro-life witness in precisely the way that I am talking about in the book. Um, there's so many uh, interesting overlaps between how we treat children at the border and how we treat children in the womb. Abby Johnson refuses to bend to the liberal conservative binary. She's going to live her pro-life activism consistently and however she f- sees fit and however she's called as a Christian and a Catholic Christian to as a gospel demands. And I, I couldn't think of a better example than Abby Johnson. You're a uh, mentor and teacher to students at a premier university in New York City. Tell, uh, share a little bit about how this message or your effectiveness in transmitting uh, the church's teachings uh, has been effective. How, what, what's been successful? What's resonating with young people today with regard to uh, some of these issues? Well, my job as a professor and as a teacher is not to um, evangelize in the classroom. I'm an academic. I'm, re- I'm having an academic classroom, but um, uh, which is unlike a lot of other professors, I think, in, in higher education today. I think many there's kind of a secular evangelization going on in many um, academic classrooms across the country. But my experience when students are exposed to the different kinds of arguments, when they hear um, you know, a consistent life ethic is one of several kind of different arguments in the mix. They're very interested because they are not, they don't see these kinds of arguments or positions or principles in their daily lives. It's not something they're exposed to um, in most of their, um, you know, day-to-day um, interactions with people. And young people today are looking around for something new. They're not interested in their great-grandparents or their grandparents, you know, right-left binary. It doesn't fit them. It doesn't it doesn't speak to their own experience. But they don't really have another framework to use. And because they don't have a framework to use, they kind of are kind of listless and kind of drifting and not exactly connected in various ways. And I think something, I know something like a consistent life ethic for many is a kind of springboard to thinking about things more creatively and say, well, maybe I don't need to totally give up on national politics. There are there are different ways to engage this that meet with my experience. You challenge a lot of people with your discussion of the care for creation and uh, respect for animals and animal life. And obviously, uh, there's a certain human dignity that animals lack, but that doesn't mean we can do with them what they please. Say a little bit about that and, and how you integrate respect for the lower orders of creation, one might say, into your pro-life witness. Yeah, I think the the sickest and most marginalized human animal matters more than the you know most powerful and most sophisticated non-human animal but as you mentioned especially if we're an integral um if we have a, a concern for integral ecology we have to think about all of creation and its interactions together and it's very interesting how so much of what happens to our uh, fellow creatures um, hap- um, happens as a, a, in similar ways what happens to human beings at risk for throwaway culture too. One of the most amazing things that I've seen in recent years is the um, the uh, the journalism that was done to show that Planned Parenthood was selling aborted baby body parts over the last two or three years. That has been made, at least in pro-life circles, made a lot of news, has made enough news in other circles. Uh, but what's, what's been interesting about that is the attempts of people who find that so inconvenient 
their attempt to shut it down and say, we don't want to look at that. That's too inconvenient for us. It's horrific. It just bothers us to the point where we just need to marginalize it and put it out of our, put it out of our minds and certainly off of our screens. Something similar is true with how we treat animals. Again, they don't matter as much as humans, but we're in a very similar situation. So um, journalists who try to document the terrible things we do to animals in factory farms, and it's just horrific, <clears throat> often get the kind of similar kinds of reactions. You know, you, you, the, even some states will make it illegal to take pictures or videos of what happens in these farms for precisely these reasons. And when the throwaway culture can't bear um, showing us what the result of the throwaway culture is, that's time for all of us to take, take a second look and say, well, if we have our pets and we treat our pets a certain way and there's similar animals that we just randomly call our food and then discard, um, maybe that's also a problem. Maybe there are similar reasons that we ought not to be uh, turned a blind eye to that kind of violence as well. One of my favorite, in addition to Abby Johnson, one of my favorite pro-life activists and scholars is a woman named Mary Eberstadt. She's a pretty conservative pro-lifer. Um, she wrote an article for First Things um, in which she argued that, well, she titled it Pro-Animal, Pro-Life, where she said, you know, um, vegetarians and pro-lifers are, you know, enemies as an example uh, or as a result of historical accident rather than any, you know, intrinsic or based on, you know, ideas or arguments. In fact, there's quite a bit of overlap. And you mentioned in the previous question how to reach out to young people. In my experience, if you can say, you know, I care very deeply about the violence that you care about when it comes to how we treat animals. Let me explain to you how we do it to humans, too, especially at the beginning and end of life. That's a really important tool, I think, at least in my experience, for opening people up who are skeptical of the traditional pro-life movement. Dr. Kamosi, we, we wish we, we had more time with you today, but uh, our listeners can read more in your latest book from New City Press, Resisting the Throwaway Culture, How a Consistent Life Ethic Can Unite a Fractured People. You can follow him on Twitter at C. Kamosi, C-C-A-M-O-S-Y. Again, that's a fantastic book, and you've heard a little bit about why Dr. Kamosi is one of the most compelling voices in the church and in the public square today. Thanks for joining us today. God bless you and your work. Thanks for inviting me, Jason. And we'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. And now we're going to delve into our mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending to our producer, Kit Cross. Again, if you'd like to email your questions to us, uh, show at mncatholic.org. Again, that's show at mncatholic.org. Kit, what do we have today? So one of the big things on the radar right now is a lawsuit that Minnesota is facing, which threatens to get rid of health and safety protections for women who are seeking an abortion. On Facebook, we had a comment or question from Margaret who says those who are supporting this lawsuit essentially just want to have abortion be less regulated, more so than ear piercing or even tattoos. So, Jason, is that the case? And could you explain for our listeners what exactly the changes would be if this lawsuit succeeded? 
Well, tattoo parlors and uh, piercing pagodas and things of that nature often have more uh, health and safety and inspections than and licensing requirements than many abortion facilities. And uh, that's a sad fact, but um, a number of attempts to license and regulate abortion clinics at the state level have failed in recent years. But yeah, and, and on one level, some tattoo parlors face more inspections from municipal and state authorities than abortion clinics do. A lawsuit filed in Ramsey County earlier this spring challenges numerous abortion-related laws in Minnesota. It seeks to overturn, for example, the Minnesota's Women's Right to Know Law, Parental, Noti- or parental Notification Law, our Abortion Data Reporting Law, and among others. My sense is that this would make, uh, if these uh, regulations, these common sense health and safety regulations were struck down, Minnesota would become one of the most radical pro-abortion states in, in the United States. These are common sense regulations passed in a strongly bipartisan fashion uh, over the years. And and some are like, well, why are they challenging them now? Why are these being challenged now? Why not just go through through the legislative process? It'd be very difficult to overturn these through the legislative process. And when you can't get what you want from one branch of government, you go to another. Mm -hmm. So these regulations are being attacked. In the courts, I think uh, there are a number of people who believe that the courts are more friendly in Minnesota now that they've been in the past after eight years of Governor Dayton appointing judges and now Governor Walls doing the same, that the courts are going to be more uh, felicitous towards some of those claims. Uh, But uh, really, it would be a tragedy because, again, these laws protect the ones that are being challenged, protect um, women's health and safety. Uh, They also make sure that when an abortion is procured, it's done with informed consent. That's why women's right to know, uh, our women's right to know law is so important, along with parental notification, making sure that uh, parents of minor children are informed uh, when their child is uh, interested in procuring an abortion. The data statistics around abortion that Minnesota produces every year, which helps us uh, know that uh, abortion continues to decline here in Minnesota, another 2% decrease in 2018 and uh, the third lowest total of abortions since 1974 uh, here in Minnesota. Why do these laws matter? Let me provide two concrete examples. Uh, Minnesota's uh, parental notification law, when it was passed in 1981, uh, there were 2,327 abortions on minors in 1980, 2,327. That number today is now 221 in uh, 2018. So significant decrease um, in abortions performed on minors between the time that law was passed in 1981 and 2018. Uh, Women receiving, uh, in 2018, 12,408 women received women's right to know informed consent information. And the data shows that that means nearly 2,500 women who received that information opted against abortion after receiving non-biased information about risks and alternatives. These laws, they seem like they don't do them a lot on paper, but they really, really do. And the abortion data uh, law, which helps us know the impact of these laws, is being challenged in court uh, somehow under the claim that these laws pre- present an undue burden to women, along with the uh, fetal burial and uh, fetal remains and fetal disposal statutes that make sure that fetal remains are treated in a dignified manner. We want to make sure that uh, fetal remains aren't just put in the trash like uh, any other uh, waste. And we talked with Dr. Kamosi about the throwaway culture, whether what greater emblem of the throwaway culture than there could be than disposing of human remains in an undignified manner. So these laws matter 
Um, they, the abortion industry wants to be completely unregulated, uh, even in a common sense way. That's wrong. And so organizations will be working, as is the uh, attorney general's office, to defend these statutes in court and make sure that we're uh, proactively defending the important laws that uh, protect health and safety and provide informed consent here in Minnesota. Is there anything that lay Catholics could be doing in this case? Well, in the courts, it's a little bit harder, right? Uh, it's not like the political, the normal political process where people can contact their legislators, say what's important. But it's important that legislate. I think the first thing it's important that public officials know that these laws are important to them, and that even though they're in the court system, that they should defend them. We also have judges who are elected in Minnesota. Judges are elected officials here in the state of Minnesota. They don't get lifetime appointments. So uh, we should be watching how judges rule. And if judges, in fact, uh, rule in a wrong way that um, we think is activist and unconstitutional, um, improper, beyond the scope of their authority to strike down these uh, legitimate and reasonable legislative enactments, then we can work in the political process to hold those judges accountable as well. Prayer, of course, is an, always an important and cornerstone thing that we need to do before even we act. And at the same time, we can also support organizations who are standing up for these laws in the public arena and working to protect life in all its stages from conception, natural death. That's wonderful. And so before we go today, we have just a few more minutes and we want to provide our listeners with a practical way that they can start living out their call as faithful citizens. Each week, you can tune in here and we'll give you those practical tips to bridge the gap between faith and politics. What have we got for our listeners today, Jason? Well, in this bricklayer segment that's brought to you by the Knights of Columbus, Minnesota State Council, the Knights of Columbus are building the domestic church. We propose your engagement with the Catholic Advocacy Network. We at the Minnesota Catholic Conference wouldn't be doing our jobs if all we did uh, was to serve as lobbyists on behalf of the church. We need to provide the lay faithful with practical ways that they can get involved and get active and join their voice to the voice of our bishops on important issues that affect life and dignity. So we created the Catholic Advocacy Network, which you can find out about and join at our website, mncatholic.org. Again, that's mncatholic.org. People always do, often don't know what to say, when to say it, or how to say it in the public arena. And we try to make that as easy as possible for people by allowing them, to, with a click of the mouse, to send a message to their legislators and public officials about important issues. So if you sign up for the Catholic Advocacy Network, you'll receive periodic emails and action alerts about key issues. And we try to make it very easy for you. We craft a pre-made message that you can personalize, and because we have your information about where you live, once you click on that button, it goes right to your elected officials. Now, people think, well, even that doesn't seem like it makes a whole lot of difference. We can tell you that it makes a very, very big impact. Now, mass emails from people outside of a legislator's district, that doesn't make much of a difference because uh, they care about what people in their districts are thinking about. But if you're in that district, they want to know what you're thinking about, what you care about, and what issues you're engaged in. Most legislators have a very narrow set of issues that they really care about and then look for guidance from others about all the rest of it. That sometimes comes from their parties or their leadership or their friends, but mostly it comes from their constituents. So when even 10 people 
uh, reach out to them and let them know they care about a particular issue and have a position on that, that makes a very, very big difference. I've had legislators myself say, I've gotten all these calls and emails about such and such an issue. And they and I say, well, how many is that? And they say five, <laughs> because they know that if five people write them, 10, you know, 50 people or 100 people care about it, right? So, and, and 100 people who care about an issue in a district can make a huge difference in a reelection campaign where you need about 10,000 votes to win. If you got 100 people out canvassing and door knocking against you or for you, that can make a big difference. So, the Catholic Advocacy Network is a really great way for people to get involved. And again, you can go to mncatholic.org, mncatholic.org to find out more about that. I think that's all we've got time today. But if you've got a few more words on maybe how people can help support this radio program. Yeah, become a sponsor of the Bridge Builder Show. It's a great opportunity for businesses and organizations to advertise. Let listeners know that you support bringing the Catholic faith into the public arena. Contact Kit via our email, show at mncatholic.org, for more sponsorship opportunities. Remember, you can also be a part of our mailbag segment. Just send any of your questions or comments to show at mncatholic.org or connect with us on Facebook. Then tune in next week to find out if we include your question or comment. Remember, too, that you can catch up on past episodes online at mncatholic.org slash podcast or search for The Bridge Builder Podcast on your favorite podcast app. And we have an amazing uh, lineup of past shows. Dr. Kamosi mentioned Mary Eberstadt. She's in our uh, interview with her is in our podcast library. More about integral ecology and a consistent ethic of life, for example, uh, with Dr. Chris Thompson. Uh, so, so many great past episodes there that you can catch up with on your drive time in the car. And again, you can find those at uh, on any of the podcast apps, but or our website, mncatholic.org slash podcast. Thanks for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week at 11 a.m. on Saturday with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life by living out your Catholic faith as a missionary disciple in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Cross of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks so much and have a great weekend.